Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. Well, like Isaac just shared, today we're beginning a new sermon series. Uh, We're going to be in the book of Acts, and we've called this series, you can see on the screen, Actors. And the reason why is because throughout this series, we're not necessarily going to be working through every individual verse of the book of Acts, but what we are going to be doing is looking at the characters who make up the story. The book of Acts covers a lot of ground, both in terms of geography and in time, but through it all, no matter what uh, characters on stage, no matter who is at the centerpiece of the story at that time, the one thing that remains the same throughout the book of Acts is the fact that the story of the early church is how a group of people are being transformed by the presence of the Holy Spirit and the message of the gospel of Jesus. And as that happens, they follow where God is leading them as as they proclaim that message. And so my hope as we go along in this series is that you'll be able to see the continuity between the series we've just come out of and the series we're going to be entering into over the next few weeks. After Easter, if you were with us, you know uh, we spent five weeks looking at what Jesus has to say about how his people are to live together as a community. And now we're going to be looking at the transformation that occurs in the lives of people because of the message of Jesus. We've just come out of this series of looking at how the forest is supposed to function, if you will. And now, over the next few weeks, we're going to be drilling down a little bit and looking at individual trees within that forest. And my hope is that the text we're unpacking today can be a little bit of a bridge between between those two series. And if you are not a follower of Jesus, I hope, first off, I'm glad you're here. Second off, my hope is that you'll follow along over the course of this series to see the stories that get recorded in the book of Acts about the transformation that comes with the message of the gospel because that same sort of transformation is available through the message of Jesus today. So we're going to be, like Isaac already mentioned, at the end of Acts chapter 2 this morning. If you want to turn there in your Bibles or get a Bible out from a a seat in front of you or wait for those words to be up on the, the verses to be up on the screen here in just a moment. And Since this passage we're going to be looking at this morning is kind of the summary and conclusion of the first kind of major scene of the book of Acts, I want to take a little bit of time uh, to summarize where we've been in the book of Acts up to this point to hopefully try to get us up to speed. And the book of Acts, you might know already, is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the, the The book of Acts begins with Luke telling us that in his former book, meaning the Gospel of Luke, He told us about everything that Jesus began to do and teach. And the fact that he mentions that Jesus began something seems to imply that he's not done doing and teaching just yet. We're told that after Jesus resurrected from the dead, he appeared to his followers at various points over the course of a 40-day period. And and during that time, he taught his disciples about the kingdom, about about what life was going to look like now that he was resurrected from the dead. And he told them to wait in the city of Jerusalem until the time when the Holy Spirit would come and be poured out on them. And when the Holy Spirit arrived, then his followers would be empowered to take his message across the entire globe. So after this, Jesus ascends into heaven, 
with the promise there that, that just as he ascended, he will one day descend again. And his followers do just what Jesus commanded them to do. They, they wait in Jerusalem. Ten more days pass until they get to the day of Pentecost. And, and on that day, they hear this sound of a rushing wind. Luke tells us they see these things that look like tongues of fire coming down to rest on each of them. And when that happens, they all begin to proclaim the message of Jesus in all kinds of different languages through the power of the Holy Spirit so that all those around them can hear the message of Jesus in their native language. And that draws quite a crowd, as you might imagine. And so as these people begin to gather and try to sort out just what is going on amongst this group of people, Peter stands up to preach. And Peter... He, he uses a lot of different Old Testament texts to, to make his point. If, if we were in preaching class, we would say he has lots of different main texts that he's all kind of weaving together as he goes along. But, but if we really wanted to simplify his main points, we would say Peter's sermon to Pentecost, or at Pentecost to this crowd gathered together is something along the lines of, point one, Jesus was the Messiah. Point two, that you killed the Messiah. Always an encouraging thing to hear. Point three... God raised the Messiah from the dead. Point four, repent and be baptized. There's plenty more to it than that, but that is essentially the case Peter is making. That Jesus truly was who he claimed to be. Jesus truly was the Messiah sent by God. And yet, he was rejected by the religious leaders of his day, the very people who were supposed to be prepared for his arrival instead turned him over to the Roman authorities to be crucified. However, that wasn't the end of the story. As we all know, God God vindicated Jesus on Easter Sunday by raising him from the dead, demonstrating once and for all that Jesus truly was who he claimed to be. And now he has ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, and Peter and the others who are there with him are witnesses to that. And God has sent the Holy Spirit to dwell with in Jesus' people as a fulfillment of, of his promise to be with them always. Because of all, that, all of that that has happened, because of the truth that, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and because of the promise that Jesus will one day return, the only appropriate response Peter gets to at the end of that sermon are those famous, his famous words recorded for us in verses 38 and 39 of Acts chapter 2. Peter replies to the crowd. They ask Peter, what are they supposed to do in light of all that he has said, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And Luke reports to us after that that by the end of the day, 3,000 people have been baptized and added to the number of God's people. So after all that excitement, what, what comes next? All these people, at least I assume, still had to get out of bed the next morning and go about their life. If you've ever been to a week of church camp, you know that feeling of when you get home and you realize that eh, life's got to go back to normal here, in a couple, here before long. Uh, when you get back from vacation, you've got laundry waiting for you. You've got work that's been piling up while you were away, just waiting for you to come back. When you get back from the honeymoon, you, you still have to be married to the person that, that you've just gone on the honeymoon with. And the same was true for the first believers in Jesus. They had been baptized. They, they had entered into Jesus' people, but that was a starting line. 
It wasn't a finish line. So Luke caps off this opening two chapters of the book of Acts with this summary statement about what life looked like in the early church. He begins by telling us about what made up their worship together, and then he goes on to show how those practices of worship spilled over into the rest of their life together. So with all that preamble, we can actually read our text for the day, picking up in Acts 2, 42. Luke writes, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They, They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. These verses give us four things the early church was devoted to in their worship. And it then follows that up by describing for us the result of devotion to those things. And this isn't a checklist necessarily or, or an absolute guarantee that if you follow these three easy steps, then you'll get everything you ever wanted or your money back. But I do think that by looking at the example of the first followers of Jesus, we get a glimpse of how Jesus has called us to live together as a response to the truth of the gospel. As the first followers of Jesus were were making sense of how their lives had been transformed by the coming of Jesus. These were the things they were devoted to. These were the the things that were the staple of their diet, if you will, as they lived their life together. And the first thing Luke mentions there is the apostles' teaching. As Luke says in in the very first verse of this book, Acts 1-1, the early church is continuing what Jesus began to do and teach. And therefore... As they're following Jesus together, the foundation of their entire existence rests on the teachings of the apostles. Because in the world the early church inhabited, they stood out like a sore thumb. There were plenty of groups within Judaism at this time. We get groups, you read about different groups in the Gospels. Jesus interacts with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and there's other groups we know about from history as well at this time, but... But it's a little different with the early church. It would sort of be like all the different denominations of Christian churches we have today, but, but not quite. An average person on the street might look at this early group of the early church, these people following Jesus, and think, well, they're just one more group under this big tent of, of the Jewish faith. But, but there was one thing that made them extremely different. What sets this group apart is the fact that they believe Jesus is the Messiah, which was unheard of. No one else could have conceived of the idea of a Messiah dying on a cross. You weren't supposed to celebrate people who died by crucifixion, and yet that's exactly what the early church did. Not only did they think he was a great guy who should be celebrated, they thought he was the king of the universe. And when you stick out like a sore thumb like that, when there's something like that that makes you stand out, it's important for you to know your stuff. I have a friend back in Missouri named Logan, and and Logan's one of the few kids in his class who is a Chicago Cubs fan. And I pray regularly for him that he would repent of his his sinfulness. 
But when you are a solitary Chicago Cubs fan, living amongst a sea of reasonable people who, who are fans of the St. Louis Cardinals, you can either do the right thing and, and you know, give in to the truth, or, or you can double down and make sure you know your stuff better than anyone. Logan and I, Logan and I have had conversations where he's told me baseball statistics, statistics about Cardinals players, and I've said, there's absolutely no way that's right. You were wrong, and then I pull it up on my phone, and it turns out he was right. And when you are in the minority, if you're, if you're going to stay committed to that position, you better know your stuff. And that's what we see from the early church here. The world around them would have thought they were insane. You believe that this guy Jesus rose from the dead? You really believe that he was God in the flesh? They might have sounded crazy to the average person on the street, but they were being guided by the truth of Jesus' teachings, the the claims he made about himself, the inspiration of the authors of the Old Testament, and the inspiration of the apostles as they recounted Jesus' words, and how he fulfilled the scriptures of the Old Testament that they had known for their entire lives. The foundation of their existence as God's people was what God had revealed through the Old Testament scriptures and the teaching of those scriptures by the apostles as they were reading them through the lens of the coming of Jesus. The apostles were not out in left field inventing anything new. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, we are told about Jesus explaining how the Old Testament was all pointing to him. And the apostles are continuing that tradition. The story of the Old Testament. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. If you want to join us next week, the story of the Old Testament is the story of God preparing his people for the arrival of his Messiah, Jesus. And the early church is making sense of life in light of Jesus' coming. And as they do that, they are immersing themselves in the Scriptures. And as we live as God's people today, as we live as people who have the benefit not only of how God has revealed himself in the Old Testament, but also how he has spoken through the, writing of these, the writings of these very apostles in our New Testaments, we would be wise to follow their example. Now, I'm not saying that everyone in this room is required to have a Ph.D. in theology if they want to be a real Christian, but I am saying that if we're going to live in a world that does not always agree with what the Bible says, we should be people who are immersed in Scripture. But this life together that that Luke describes is not just a book club. It's also a fellowship. And that that doesn't seem to be just a generic reference to potlucks or something like that, because Luke refers to it in the original language as the fellowship. This appears to be some sort of formal gathering together. And that term Luke uses there is one of close relationship, one of sharing together, which we get a little more of a glimpse of later in this passage, when Luke talks about everyone sharing their possessions. But right here, Luke is getting at an intentional aspect of the life of the church together and translating that into our life as the church today. This time of gathering together for worship is not just for everyone to hear a speech from the Bible or to listen to a few songs. It's a fellowship. You are not just here for yourself. You were here for those around you as well. 
And that doesn't mean that the only reason to come to church is to have social hour. But I think that in the last year where so much of our social interaction has been reduced or taken away completely, and now where we're starting to to see more and more people coming back to church for the first time in a while, and maybe hopefully here before too long we'll be able to see everyone's full face again, we should not lose sight of that purpose during our time together. Over in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of that letter is encouraging their audience to hold on to the hope that they have in Jesus. And one of the aspects that they mention is to not give up the habit of meeting together, but instead to encourage one another in light of the fact that one day Jesus will return. We are not in this room as a bunch of individuals. We are not watching online as a bunch of people just watching it, looking at a screen by ourselves. We are worshiping as a community. We come together to encourage one another. We come together so that those who are younger can look at those who are older and take inspiration for how to go forward in their walk with Jesus. We come together so that those who are currently going through difficulty can look at those who have made it through their own difficulties and know that they can, they can get to the light at the end of the tunnel and come out of that tunnel looking more like Jesus. Our fellowship might look different now than it did a year ago or than it looked five years ago, but at the heart of it all should always be the goal of encouraging one another to grow in Christ-likeness. And as another component of that worship together, Luke mentions the breaking of bread. And since he mentions breaking bread again later, and when he does it later, he's specifically saying that they're breaking bread in homes with one another, it seems like what Luke is getting at here is breaking bread within worship as we take this meal together that we're going to take in a few moments that we call communion. I say a few moments just to make you think the sermon's going to be over soon. Jesus gave us this meal on the night before he was crucified as a reminder of what he has done for us and a proclamation of our belief that Jesus will one day return and will make all things new. No matter what else might go on in our worship service or on a Sunday morning, no matter what songs we sing, no matter what the, song, what the sermon is about, our time to take communion each week is a physical reminder of the story of the gospel. I don't know what goes through your head if you take this meal every week. Maybe, you're, maybe when you take this meal, you're, all you're thinking is, wow, it's really a pain to try to get this cup open. But, but I hope that no matter what is going on in your head, no matter what has gone on in your Sunday morning, no matter what's gone on in the last week, what you're going through, I hope that this time where we all together take a little bit of bread and a little bit of juice can be a reminder of what Jesus has done and how we have responded to him in faith. And the last thing Luke mentions there, out of those four things in verse 42, is prayer. And again, it's not like Luke is saying that you can only pray during church, but here specifically, in the original language, what he says is that they, is that they devoted themselves to the prayers, which seems to be referring to something besides just making sure you pray before your meals every day, and not, not because Luke's against praying every day or praying before meals, but because he's focused specifically on the worship of the early church together and the practice of prayer during that time. Because of the coming of Jesus... We have access to God our Father through prayer, just as a child has access to their parent. And for that reason, we are able to bring our request before God like we've already done this morning. 
We were able to lift up our brothers and sisters experiencing health issues or grieving loss of a loved one, those who have some other need. We can pray for the work of those we support as a congregation who are ministering in other places specifically because we know that when we bring those requests before God, he hears us. And for that reason, we should never hesitate to bring our requests before him at any time, but especially in our time of worship together. That's the example we see among the early church here, and it should be our guide as well. And Luke continues in this passage to show us the result of this sort of worship that spills over into our life together. We see in this that our baptism is not fire insurance to protect us against something in the future, but really doesn't make any difference right here and right now. Our baptism is entrance into life with God and life with others. This passage we're looking at this morning is a continuation of that call of Peter in verses 38 and 39 that we read earlier, to repent and be baptized, because these verses are describing the transformation that results in our commitment to life in Jesus. The message of the gospel is not just something that changes how early we get up on a Sunday morning. It transforms every part of our, of our existence, and Luke shows us how that transformation, transformation shows up, not just in worship, but everywhere else. First, he, he says that the surrounding community was filled with awe when they looked at what was going on among the early church. And that, that word translated as awe in the version we've been reading from is, is the Greek word phobos, and you might hear our English word phobia in there. Because most of the time, uh, this Greek word means fear. And it can mean what we mean with our English word fear, like having a fear of the dark or something like that. But if you look through the Gospel of Luke and Acts, when Luke uses this word, you will see that basically every time this word shows up, it's someone reacting to something that God has done that they can't fully understand, explain, or control. And that's what's going on here. Not everyone's on board with the message of Jesus, but they can't deny the fact that something's going on here. And that's expressed in miraculous signs, like Luke says there in verse 43, but it's also expressed in what's described in the following verses as the believers shared their resources and their time together. Back in Deuteronomy 15, God gives this command to the nation of Israel that there should not be any poor among them ever. God says that if someone was in need, they should always be cared for by the entire community. And we see that ideal realized here among the early church. This is not a mandate from on high that you have to give a certain amount of your income to the church if you want to actually be accepted. But this is a group of people naturally wanting to use their abundance to care for their brothers and sisters who have need. They're gathering together in the temple courts to worship. They're gathering in one another's homes to share meals. And through it all, they are giving praise to God. And the result from that is favor being enjoyed with the broader public and the fact that God is adding to their number. And This is what happens when the transformation of the gospel takes root among a group of people. It might not look exactly the same in every single circumstance, but the, that sharing of time and resources and growing together is a natural outgrowth of what Jesus has done. Because Jesus, if you haven't picked it up yet over the last few weeks, Jesus has not saved a bunch of individuals for some far-off future reward. He has saved a people. He has created a family, 
a family that is called to do life together in the present, to encourage one another to grow to be more like Jesus. So if that's the sort of response we see from a people transformed by the message of Jesus in the book of Acts, what, what's the moral of the story? What, how does the gospel impact our life together? Well, first and foremost, we should begin with where this passage begins, being devoted to Scripture. I don't get up here on stage every week to share with you my opinions. If I did, it would be a waste of my time and everyone else's time as well. I'm here so that all of us, myself included, can hear what God says to us through his word. That's the foundation of our worship together. It informs all the other things we do in our life together. We want to spend time in fellowship together because of what Scripture says about how we have been called to care for one another. We take time each week for this meal of communion, as small as it might seem, as a tangible reminder of what Jesus has done for us. We, we lift our prayer requests up to God because Jesus has made it possible for us to be brought into relationship with God. And for that reason, we know that He hears our prayers, even if we don't even know what the prayer request is. Our worship together is a time for all of us to be encouraged, for us to encourage one another, for us to begin conversations, for us to go deeper into our understanding of who God is and what he has called us to be. But that's only one component of our relationship to God and our life together. You should not only hear from God's word when you are in this room. It is absolutely important that we gather together for worship, that we do the sorts of things described here at the end of Acts chapter 2. But if that is not spilling over into our lives outside of this building and during the rest of the week, we are stopping short of the example that we see laid out in this passage. And we're stopping short of the life that God invites us into as his people. So what that means for us is that as the truths of our worship carry over into every other area of our lives, we will do just what we see done among the early church in this passage and share what we have and who we are with those who are following Jesus alongside us. Now, I don't know what that looks like in every single situation, especially given health and safety protocols that change all the time. But I think the challenge for all of God's people in light of this text is to dig deeper into our relationships. We need one another growing together to be more like Jesus. I'm not asking you to do anything you're uncomfortable with from a health and safety standpoint. I'm asking you if this body of believers is your family or if it's a group of people you run into from time to time. Because we've been called to be a family. And that means we will be sharing our lives together because of our unity around Jesus. So as we all make our way back into the world and in-person worship, uh, maybe take an extra step here on a Sunday morning to reconnect with someone you haven't seen in a while or connect with someone for the first time so that they know that they are loved and welcomed here as a part of this family of believers. And that might be something small, but I think it's a key part of the transformation that comes with the gospel. This sort of worship in our life together is what it means to be to be the church as we participate in this story that the gospel of Acts is, or that the book of Acts is telling us. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for our brothers and sisters 
who walk with us through the highs and lows of life, who through it all um, help us form us to be more like you. So, Father, as we look at the example of the early church, we ask that you would help us, help us see how to follow their example, that we would care for one another, that we would meet one another's needs, that we would encourage one another in um, fellowship together, but most importantly, have as our foundation our worship of you. I have your scriptures at, at our core, and our, our prayer, our fellowship, our breaking of bread together spill over into every other aspect of our lives. And as we do that, may we invite others in to be a part of that as well, to go deeper in the relationships we already have and invite in those who are, who are worshiping with us for the first time. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French. 